A special thanks to Chase and Nicole for filling in for Chris while he is away. Special thanks to Ryan for doing what he always does. And it's a pleasure to be with you and a good morning to each one of you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Back in January, we began to study together Christ's public ministry. John records it for us beginning in chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 12. And he seems to arrange his account of Christ's public ministry according to six incidents. To begin with, Christ heals the lame man. That's in chapter 5. There's terrible opposition in the midst of which the Lord Jesus claims to be the possessor of life. The second incident is found in chapter 6. The Lord Jesus feeds the multitude. There is opposition. And in the midst of that opposition, the Lord Jesus claims to be the bread of life. In chapter 7, we have a third incident. The Lord Jesus appears in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. There is opposition. And Christ claims to be the water of life. In chapter 8, there is an incident. The Lord Jesus forgives that woman caught in adultery. There is opposition, in the midst of which Christ claims to be the light of life. The fifth incident, recorded in chapters 9 and 10, the Lord Jesus heals the blind man. It's followed by opposition, followed by this great claim on the part of the Lord Jesus to be the giver of life. And then the sixth and final incident in Christ's public ministry is recorded in chapters 11 and 12. The Lord Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. There is opposition and Christ claims to be the source of life. Christ's message from the start of his public ministry to the end of his public ministry from chapter 5 to chapter 12 is Himself. Did you catch that? His message is himself. He doesn't merely give bread. Christ is the bread. He doesn't merely supply water. Christ is the water. He doesn't merely shed light. Christ is the light. He doesn't merely show a door. Christ is the door. He doesn't merely name a shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. He doesn't merely provide life. Christ is the life. Christ's message during the three or so years of his public ministry is himself. In him is life. The centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, we find abundant life. That in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, we find peace and joy and comfort. That in Christ alone, we find satisfaction for our soul. We find meaning to life. We find the answer to every question. That Christ is central. Central to our existence. Central to our very being. 
I was reminded of this years ago by a by a little cassette that a, a friend gave me. Some of you younger ones don't have a clue what a cassette is. You can ask me afterwards. But this friend of mine gave me a cassette with a, with a sermon on it, and I, I lost it somewhere in a move to Portugal or from Portugal back to Canada. I don't know, but I lost it somewhere along the way. But it was a sermon I had listened to six or seven times in which the preacher was stressing this point. And in this sermon, he told a story, a story I could only remember really snippets of, but I found it the other day, just this past week, in a book I was skimming through to my delight. I want to share this story with you this morning because it illustrates for us the centrality of Christ, that in him, in him alone, is, is life. And perhaps you've heard this story before. If so, bear with me. But it does, it does remind us of this all, all-encompassing truth. There was a very wealthy man who along with his devoted son shared a passion for art collecting. They traveled around the world together, adding only the finest paintings to their collections. Including among them were works by Picasso, Van Gogh, and Monet. The old man was a widower, but his son filled up the void in his life, and this was their common bond. But war erupted. The young man enlisted and was sent overseas day after day. The old father prayed, held his breath, and waited for news. One autumn day near Thanksgiving, the dreaded telegram came, bordered in black. The young man had died bravely in combat. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming holidays with anguish and sorrow. On Christmas morning, a knock sounded at the door. The father opened it to find a soldier carrying a small package. As they talked, the soldier said, your son and I became very close. And he told me all about your joint art collection. I myself am an artist. And I wanted to give you this. The man took this package in his feeble hands, unwrapped it. And there was a portrait of his son in striking detail. It wasn't a masterpiece. But it was the most precious work of art the man had ever seen. As he gazed at it, he wept. And as the young soldier left, the lonely father pushed aside thousands of dollars worth of art and hung the portrait of his son in the prized spot over the fireplace. Following spring, the old man grew ill and died. The art world was full of anticipation, wanting to get its hands on this man's fabulous collection. A day was set to auction it all off. And according to the old man's instruction, the first painting was the one that was not on any museum's list. The painting of the man's son. When the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, the room was silent. Who will open the bidding at $100, he asked. And the moment stretched on awkwardly. And finally, someone in the back of the room said, let's get on with the next piece. No, replied the auctioneer, we have to sell this one first. Finally, a neighbor of the man spoke, will you take $50 for the painting? It's all I have. But I knew that boy and I loved him, so I'd like to have it. $50, we have $50, shouted the auctioneer. Will anyone go higher? No one did. Going once, going twice, gone, and the gavel fell. Everyone breathed a deep sigh of relief, thankful that now they could proceed with the real auction, and get their hands on the masterpieces. But imagine their shock when the auctioneer suddenly declared 
that the proceedings were over. A loud clamor arose. Stunned disbelief. What do you mean it's over? The people shouted. What about all of the masterpieces? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will, whoever takes the sun gets it all. Whoever takes the sun gets it all. The Bible says, God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. That is John chapters 5 to 12 in a nutshell. That is it. In him is life. Day after day, the cry of the Lord Jesus Christ, although he issues it in different fashions, in different manners, in different ways, his message is always the same. It is himself. He is offering himself and declaring to mankind that in him is life. Well, in our study of these chapters, we have arrived almost at the end. We've entered into this final incident in chapters 11 and 12. There is a sign. Chapter 11, the first 44 verses. We looked at that last week. The Lord Jesus restores Lazarus, a dead man, to life. There is secondly a reaction. It begins in verse 45 of chapter 11. Goes more or less all the way through to chapter 12 verse 19. And then there is a final discourse uttered by the Lord Jesus. Chapter 12 verse 20 through 36. So we've looked at the sign. and Now this morning we're going to consider together the reaction. And so please follow along as I begin reading in chapter 11. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come And take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany 
where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, again, right through to verse 44, we have the incident, the sign. The Lord Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Restoration to life. Perhaps last week I might have used the word resurrection and the word restoration interchangeably. If we want to be precise in our language, I suppose we should talk in terms of restoration. Because Lazarus wasn't, strictly speaking, resurrected. Now, the first person to be resurrected is the Lord Jesus Christ. To be resurrected is to be given a glorified body. Uh, Lazarus was not given a glorified body. Uh, Lazarus died again. He was restored to life. The Lord Jesus was the first man to be resurrected. The Lord Jesus was the first man to receive a glorified body. And the Lord Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so what we have in the first 44 verses then is this marvelous account of the restoration of life to Lazarus. And we have this tremendous manifestation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, this revelation of what we might call his excellence. We see that Christ is excellent, supremely excellent. And when we think of the excellence of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have two things before us. We have on the one hand what we might call, what we might term, his natural excellence, his sovereignty. 
His authority, His power. We see, we behold His natural excellence in that sign. His sovereignty, He's in complete control of the situation. His authority, He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. His power, He restores life to Lazarus. Christ's natural excellence. But we also behold His moral excellence. His loving kindness. His compassion toward Mary and Martha. His goodness. His faithfulness. And as our minds ponder the natural and moral excellence of Christ, we behold the Lord of glory. How do people respond? What's the reaction? It's summarized for us, really, I suppose, in verses 45 and 46. Twofold reaction or response. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, what Jesus did, believed in him. That's the first response. Pretty good. But verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so there are some who believe. And there are some who do not believe. And then from verse 47 right through to verse 8 of chapter 12, the narrative turns really from the crowds and focuses on three people. Three people, flesh and blood, just like you and me. Three individuals. And John records for us the responses, the individual responses of these three people. And the first is Caiaphas, beginning in verse 47, I suppose right through to the end of chapter 11. Some of those who witnessed the sign, some of the Jews who saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they don't believe, they're not that impressed, they run to tell the Pharisees. What do the Pharisees do? What is their reaction? They gather the council together and they ask themselves, look at it right there in verse 47, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Oh, I pray to God that the significance of that statement does not escape you this morning. What are we to do for because this man performs many signs? They are not gathered together to dispute the signs. They're not gathered together to say, hey, let's consider the scientific evidence that is before us. Let's consider the historical accuracy of what we have just heard. They do not deny the signs. They do not doubt the signs. They cannot deny it. They cannot distort it. They cannot doubt it. They cannot debate it. They are helpless and hopeless. There is nothing that they can do. Lazarus was dead. Four days in the tomb, everyone knows it. This didn't happen out in the middle of the desert with no one around. This occurred in the city of Bethany, not even two miles from the city of Jerusalem. Everyone knew it. Lazarus was dead and buried. Now Lazarus is walking around talking to everybody. Big problem insofar as the Pharisees are concerned. They don't doubt it. They don't discuss it. They don't say, hmm, let's consider the evidence. They know it is true. But they are not moved. They are not shaken to the core 
Why? Find the answer in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Very illuminating statement coming up. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is the council concerned about? What is it that drives these men? What is it that motivates them? What are are they concerned about? What is upmost in their mind? Their own power and position and privilege. Hey, messianic fever. It's setting in. The crowds are going frantic. Everybody's running everywhere, hailing him as the Messiah. If the Romans catch wind of this, they're going to descend on us like a bunch of vultures. And guess who's going to bear the brunt of their enmity? Us, the leaders. And so what can we do? What must we do? What are we to do? And so Caiaphas, who is the high priest, stands forward. Verse 49, he says, you know, right at the end of verse 49, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So when Caiaphas is thinking, he has reason to himself, look, we must carry out our original plan to kill this man. One man must die. We must see to it so that the nation is preserved from, the, from Roman oppression and from the boot of Rome. But look, according to verse 51, there's a lot more going on here than Caiaphas realizes. Caiaphas says what he intends to say, but does not understand the full significance of his words. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered Abroad, Just like God used Balaam unwillingly, just like God used Saul unwillingly, he uses Caiaphas unwillingly to prophesy without him even realizing it. His words have this double meaning. He's thinking purely in material terms. We kill the Lord Jesus. We save our own place and prestige and position and privilege. And the nation is preserved. But there's a much deeper significance here that, yes, the Lord Jesus will indeed die. And yes, the Lord Jesus will indeed die for the salvation of his people. But it will not be to save them from the Romans or from any foreign oppressors. It will be to save them from their sin, their bondage to sin, their bondage to Satan. It will be to lay down his life at Calvary's cross Bear that penalty and judgment that they merit, that they deserve in full, so that they might go free. And this is perhaps the last prophecy ever, ever uttered through the Jewish nation. A prophecy concerning the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Caiaphas wins the day. He convinces everyone, let's, let's proceed with our original plan and intent to kill this man. Look, the Passover is coming. He won't be able to stay away. 
He always seems to show up whenever we have one of these annual festivals and celebrations in Jerusalem. Surely he will come to celebrate the Passover. When he comes, we will snatch him. And so they wait like a lion, just patiently waiting for its prey to draw nearer and nearer that they might pounce. And so that's Caiaphas. That's his reaction. As we move into chapter 12, we have a We have another response or reaction that stands in marked contrast to Caiaphas. It is the reaction of Mary. And it's six days before Passover. True enough, the Lord Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He stops at Bethany just a couple of miles outside the city gates. Lazarus is there. Mary is there. Martha is there. There's a big dinner. I don't know if this is a celebration, perhaps, because of what the Lord Jesus has done for Lazarus. But in the midst of this supper, as the Lord Jesus reclines at the table, something dawns on Mary. Mary knows Christ is going to die. He has said it. He has told them repeatedly that his hour is coming. The cross is drawing near. He must go to Jerusalem to give his life for his people. Mary knows it. Mary knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all the Jewish religious leaders, hate Christ. Mary knows that they are plotting Christ's downfall and death. She knows. It is just a matter of time. In preparation for that day, she has set aside this container, this box of ointment or perfume. She has set it aside with the purpose of anointing Christ's body when that day comes, when finally they catch him, when finally they put him to death. She has this precious anointment already set aside with which she will anoint his body, thereby preparing him for burial. Something dawns on her. Here she is in the midst of the feast. And she's thinking to herself, you know, I want to do something now. I want to say something now. I want to convey something to him while he's still here with me. I I, I want to declare somehow, in some fashion, my devotion. My sorrow at what is coming, drawing near. My joy at what he has done for my brother. My love and my affection for him. I I, I want him to understand this now before it's too late. And so Mary takes that box or container, whatever it was of perfume. She breaks it. She anoints the head of the Lord Jesus. It cascades down his body. It covers his feet. And then Mary does the unthinkable. She loosens her hair to wipe the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is highly significant. It is highly significant. Because according to what we read, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.15, a woman's hair is her glory. And so Mary takes her glory 
And with her glory, she wipes the feet of the Lord Jesus. What is she declaring? Well, for starters, I think she's saying something about her humility, isn't she? She knows in whose presence she finds herself. She's seen the signs. She's seen her dead brother four days emerge from the tomb. She perceives the significance of the signs. She knows Christ is the Lord of glory. She knows Christ is the eternal Son of God. She is aware of His excellence, His natural excellence, His moral excellence. She is aware of her own smallness. And so she loosens her hair, her very glory, and she wipes the feet of the Lord Jesus. Oh, what an expression of humility. But not only does it express humility, I think it also expresses gratitude. What has Christ just done days before? He's raised her brother from the dead. Do you think she's thankful, folks? Oh, I dare say she's oozing gratitude for what Christ has done. Not merely that, she, she understands that when Christ restored life to Lazarus, that that sign, that miracle, pointed to a far greater miracle, namely the spiritual resurrection, the fact that the Lord Jesus imparts spiritual life to men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Mary has experienced this life. She has tasted this life. She knows that abundant life is found in Christ and as an expression of joy and thanks giving and gratitude. She anoints him with this perfume and wipes his feet with her hair. I, I want to suggest to you this morning, I want to affirm this morning, there's a third thing going on here. I'm convinced she's expressing her love. Perhaps even more than her humility and her gratitude. Simply expressing her love. I want Christ to know how much I love him. I want him to know how much I esteem him. I want him to know that I appreciate his, his value, his worth. Here's the most expensive thing I have. This perfume. I am going to pour it on him. Here is my greatest glory, my hair. And I will wipe that ointment, that precious gift from his feet with my hair that I might express to him in terms that I know are feeble, but that I might convey to him my devotion. I love what William Hendrickson writes. One hardly knows what to admire most. The irrepressible character of Mary's devotion. Or the lavish nature of her sacrifice. It isn't recorded here in John 12, but it's recorded in Matthew 26. Parallel account. Matthew records the same incident. And there Christ declares, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, what? Nearly 2,000 years later. Remembering Mary. Remembering this, this day 
remembering this precious act whereby she declared her humility, manifested her her gratitude, and declared her love unequivocally for the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish we could stop there, but we can't. Sadly, regrettably, uh, there's a third response, isn't there? We've, we've heard from Caiaphas, we've heard from Mary, and now in order, there's another one, Judas, Judas. And he steps to the forefront, really, in verse 4, and he remains in the forefront right through to verse 8, and actually becomes a very central figure right through to the cross, Judas. According to Matthew 26, the parallel account, it's the disciples who express some consternation over what they've just witnessed. Mary, what are you doing? What's going on here? Do you have any idea what this is worth? Lord, do you have any idea what this is worth? If we were to sell it, think of the money, think of the food we could buy, think of the people we could feed. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Certainly nothing wrong with feeding the poor. We are called to minister to the destitute, those who are in need. But first things first. We are not put on this earth to feed the poor. Go easy. Just let, bear with me. Let me follow that right through. We're not put on this earth to save the environment. We're not put on this earth to evangelize the nations. We're not put on this earth to raise a family. We are put on this earth to esteem the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary got it. The disciples at this point, Eh, it's not as clear. And yes, ministering to the poor is certainly a great need, certainly a great thing, but all service, all ministry must flow out of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do for others might flow, must flow out of a heart that has a true valuation, a true sense and appreciation of the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples don't get it yet. That's what's going on in Matthew 26. But here in John 12, it's a little different. No mention of the disciples really in general. But Judas Iscariot steps to the forefront. And he echoes the other disciples. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're bang on. You're, you're, you're quite right. What are we doing pouring this ointment on the Lord Jesus? Look, it's dripping on the ground now. We're wasting it. If we had sold that in the market, think of the money we could have got for it. Think of the people we could have fed. But, the, but Judas's motives and Judas's concern must not be confused with that of the disciples. The disciples are confused. Judas is devious. Judas is covetous. And Judas is envious. And simply put in a word, Judas is fed up. He's been following this man for three years. This isn't what he put in for. When he signed on and signed his name on the dotted line or whatever transpired in his call, I don't know. He thought this is it. This is the big times. This man is going to become king. We're going to throw the Romans out. He's going to become king. I will be his vice regent. Just think of the glory. Think of the wealth. Think of the power. Think of all that is in it for me. Three years later. This this isn't how I envision things. There are only 12 of us and a few women. And a bunch of people who have caught messianic fever. Oh, but they're here today. They'll be gone tomorrow. I've got nothing to show for this. I dare say Judas is simmering 
And he hits a boiling point when he sees something so valuable, something that he could have got his grubby little hands on when he sees this wasted on the Lord Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink who writes, Oh, the murmuring of Judas. Oh, the murmuring of Judas. Right after the worship of Mary is most solemnly significant. True valuation of Christ always brings out the hatred of those who are of Satan. And Judas is of the devil. There you have it. A threefold response. Caiaphas, Mary, and Judas. Three very different individuals. Three very different reactions. And what I'd like to do this morning in the time remaining is suggest to you that there are three very important points of application. Three very important lessons. There is firstly a lesson to be taken from Caiaphas. It's this. The evil of expediency. The evil of expediency. What motivated Caiaphas? His own position. His own power. His own interests. And even when faced with the truth, even when faced with that which he cannot deny, even when faced with this sign of signs, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, he is Obstinate. Why? He is not prepared to sacrifice or to lose what he thinks is rightfully his own. What should have been Caiaphas' response? When those Jews came running to him from Lazarus' tomb and said, You will not believe what just happened. Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. What should Caiaphas have done? He should have run to the Lord Jesus he should have stripped himself of those high priestly robes, placed them on the Lord Jesus Christ, and groveled in the ground before him and worshipped. Oh, but the Romans might come and we'll lose our place. It isn't expedient. I'm not prepared to give up what is mine. We see the same thing a little later in chapter 12. Let me just introduce it to you now. We'll say more about it when we get there. But look at verse 42 of chapter 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. It's a false faith. We'll see it when we get there. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man. More than the glory that comes from God. Oh, the evil of expediency. Expediency. We're, we're not immune to it. Believers aren't immune from the evil of expediency. The preacher who refuses to tell people the truth because it isn't expedient. He might lose his salary. The politician who refuses to take a biblical stand on controversial issues because it isn't expedient. He might lose votes college professor who keeps his Christian worldview to himself, hidden away, because it isn't expedient. Oh, he might lose the respect of his colleagues. The Christian who refuses to confront her family members with Christ's claims because it isn't expedient. She might lose their approval. 
Oh, the evil of expediency. Who? Who do I want to please in this life? Who, friend, pray tell, do you desire to please in this life? That's an important lesson from the example of Caiaphas. A lesson now from Judas. The danger of apostasy. The danger of apostasy. I'm guessing three years, it could have been less than that, that, the Lord, that, that Judas spends with the Lord Jesus. Undoubtedly, he had claimed to have some sort of faith in Christ. You, you, think, you think of what Judas saw during that time. Just think of what he saw with his own eye. Think of what he heard with his own ear. Think of the fact that he was one of the twelve sent out two by two through whom the Lord Jesus performed miracles. Think of the privilege and the blessing that belonged to Judas. And yet Christ identifies Judas as one who did not believe. Oh, there's an important lesson there, friends. It is this. Proximity. Proximity to Christ is no guarantee of union with Christ. We can be close, yet lost. I can be raised in a Christian home. I can attend church all my life. I can be Sunday schooled through and through. I can have said the sinner's prayer. I can be involved in a flurry of activity. I can be close, yet lost. The question that must always remain utmost in our minds is this. What do we think of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we esteem Him? Do we value Him? Do we love Him? This was driven home to me a couple summers ago. I was, I was speaking, preaching at a, at a kid's camp. I had a hundred kids, maybe eight or nine, ten years old, and I was in this question and answer period, and I, and I asked these kids, what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? And I was floored with the response that came from us, one little boy near the back who said, it means to make Christ the most important thing in your life. I was left speechless. That little guy grasped what many adults never grasp. To believe in Christ is to make Him the most important thing in our lives. Not merely to declare it with our lips, but to live it out. Oh, what a contrast between Judas and Mary. Judas No true love for Christ despite three years with Him. Despite all His claims. Despite any miracles that Christ might have performed through Him. Despite His knowledge of Christ's teaching. Despite seeing all those wonderful signs and miracles. He's lost. Close, but lost. I don't know. Maybe I'm preaching to the ceiling this morning. I pray to God I am. But woe to me if I do not take the opportunity. There could be one here, raised in a Christian home, said your little prayer when you're 7 years old, 14 years old, 21 years old, attended church all your life, but deep within, there is no true valuation of Christ. No true love for Him. 
Do you see with the eyes of faith the Lord of glory? Do you behold his natural excellence and does it cause you to fear him and stand in awe? Do you behold his moral excellence and does it warm your heart and cause you to love him and cause you to devote your life to him? That is the lesson from Judah. And there's a lesson, too, from Mary. The beauty. Oh, the beauty of devotion. Mary knows Christ. In another incident, different time, recorded in Luke 10, we read that Mary sat at Christ's feet and listened to his teaching. She knew Christ because she sat at the feet of Christ, hanging on every word taking to heart every statement, putting into practice every application. Because she knew Him, she loved Him. Same incident recorded in Luke 10. Martha's worked herself up into a frenzy, here, there, everywhere, doing this, doing that. Lord, say something to my sister. Tell her to get off her feet and help me. How does Christ respond? Oh, Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Friends, do not confuse busyness with godliness. Do not confuse activity with piety. They do not necessarily have one thing to do with the other. We are to be lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because she loves Him, she esteems Him. And that causes her to break that that, that, that ointment and to pour it on his head and as it cascades down his body to his feet to wipe his feet with her hair out of this, this expression of her esteem, her appreciation of who Christ is. And because she esteems him, she worships him. She takes her most prized possession and gives it to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stand before you this morning. And I will tell you, I'm tired of giving Christ my leftovers. I really am. Thinking he can be put off with the bits and pieces in my life. Oh no, friends. He wants our best. He wants what is most valuable and most precious to us. And if we would esteem him as he is, there would be no sacrifice too great. It actually wouldn't even be a sacrifice. It would merely be the response of our heart in overwhelming love to the lover of our souls. Oh, the beauty, the beauty of devotion. Do we have, do we have that kind of devotion? Do we have Mary's devotion? For the most part, I have been speaking to believers this morning. It is possible there are some here, however, who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me pause for a moment as we, as we do conclude this morning by, by speaking to you and by pleading with you. As you've heard, as you've heard the narrative, as you've heard the words of Scripture, and as you've, as you've come face to face with this lavish display of devotion on Mary's part, Do you see in Mary her sense of value, 
of the Lord Jesus. And, and is there something in that that you find riveting, compelling, that as you behold her devotion and the value she places on Christ and the sense of worth that she has toward Him, is there something stirred within you as you yourself contemplate the Lord of glory? It's told that Alexander McLaren, preacher in the 1800s, looking out over his congregation one Sunday, was shocked to see a well-known skeptic sitting in the audience. As they chatted after the service, McLaren persuaded the man to attend church for four more Sundays. The sermons were on the main doctrines of the Christian faith. On the fourth Sunday, the man told McLaren he had decided to become a Christian. The preacher asked, which message, which of my messages have brought you to that decision? The former skeptic replied, your sermons, sir, were helpful, but they were not what finally persuaded me to become a Christian. A few weeks ago, as I was leaving this church, I noticed an elderly lady with a radiant face. Because she was making her way with difficulty along the icy street, I offered to help her. As we walked along together, she looked up at me and said, I wonder if you know my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is everything in the world to me. And I want you to love Him too. Those few words touched my heart. And when I got home, I knelt down and received the Savior. I wonder, I wonder this morning if you know Mary's Savior, I wonder this morning if you know my Savior. Yes, you must understand that you are a sinner. Yes, you must understand that Christ died for sinners to take God's judgment upon Himself. Yes, you must understand that you must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all else, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I heard of a I heard of a lady in England. Don't remember the city or the town, but she was reporting the fact that she had a painting that had been hanging in her kitchen on her kitchen wall for years, decades. Never thought anything of it until she had a guest over who informed her that the painting was actually the work of a famous artist and was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. How many days, how many hours, how many times had that woman walked back and forth in front of that painting with absolutely no understanding whatsoever as to its value? Oh friend, how many times have you passed by the Lord Jesus Christ without understanding who stands before you? The Lord of glory.